Harup acknowledges the traditional owners of the land this podcast was recorded on. The Bunurong, Bunurang, and Wurangi Wodurang peoples of the Eastern Kulin Nation. We pay our respect to their elders past, present, and emerging, and extend this to all First Nations people. Globally, today we are faced with the most complex sustainable development challenges in history. So how do we solve these challenges? One thing's for sure, we can't do it alone. Welcome to Arab's podcast, Sustainable Forces. It's a podcast about people joining forces to help solve the most complex sustainable development challenges. My name is Dr. Michelle Dickinson. I'm an engineer, nanotechnologist, and science communicator, and I am on a mission to uncover how people are working together to positively impact the planet. Today, we are talking resilience. It's a word we are hearing a lot at the moment, thanks to COVID, but what does it mean when it comes to our built environment? For me, urban resilience is about making our cities robust and fit for some of the future climate changes that lie ahead. But for others, I'm wondering if this word has lost its true meaning. To help us talk about urban resilience and discuss what it means to them, I'm joined by Lauren Sorkin, Executive Director at the Resilient Cities Network, who is joining us from Singapore. Hi, Lauren. Hi, Michelle. It's great to be here with you. And also by Kate West, who is Arab's Australasia co-chair and joining us from Perth. Hi, Kate. Hi, Michelle. Great to be here with you and Lauren too. So thank you for joining us. And we're going to get into the meaty topic soon. But let's get started with discussing how urban resilience can actually help us to grow and adapt in times of uncertainty. Lauren, I'm going to start with you. Can you tell us a little bit about the Resilient Cities Network and the role that you have there, please? Sure, Michelle. Well, at the Resilient Cities Network, I've been serving as the executive director for the past couple of years. The network is a group of about 97 cities that are working together to ensure that their most vulnerable communities and at every level of the city, the businesses, the systems, the institutions, and the people can survive, adapt, and thrive no matter what shock or stress they face. And you know, in these very uncertain times, it's actually our networks that sustain us. It's knowing that we have out there in the world other cities, other individuals, other institutions that have faced similar challenges and can help us. So the role of the network is really to not just further, but also deepen those connections between leaders in the urban space so that they can be better prepared to face the next challenge that comes across. Thank you. And deepening connections is really important when it comes to collaboration. So Kate, let's talk a little bit about that. Can you tell us about your role at Arup and how you've been collaborating with the Resilient Cities Network? Thanks, Michelle. Now, I think we're going to talk a bit about collaboration today. Um, it's at the heart of, of what we do. So at Arup, I um, lead the region with my co-chair, Karen Coker, and we're responsible for Arup's Australasia region, which covers Australia, New Zealand, Indonesia, Malaysia and Singapore. And as co-chairs, we lead our business of 3,000 people. And Karen and I take a really strong focus on engaging with our clients, our partners 
and delivering our commitment to create a sustainable future for all. And for us, sustainable development is absolutely central to our focus, particularly as we're seeing this climate emergency unfold around us. But we can't, not as individuals or as Arab, achieve a sustainable future alone. We've all got a role to play. And I think it's that really critical focus on our partners and on collaboration to achieve change at the speed we need. So that, that brings us very nicely to our relationship with Lauren um, and her team at the Resilient Cities Network. So since January 2020, we've co-located with the Resilient Cities Network in our Singapore office, where Lauren and her team work really closely with Arab, but those relationships span right across the region. And I think the beautiful thing about our partnership is that it allows us to collaborate together but with other city decision makers, with business leaders and the community more broadly on some of these solutions, some of these really complex problems that we see arising um, as a result of climate change. And uh, over the last couple of years, we've worked on some fantastic projects together. The city's water resilience approach, the distributed renewable energies report. um, And so I'm really looking forward to talking about some of those projects today. Oh, we're excited too. And I love this theme of relationships and partnerships, and it's really helpful to get that background. So now we're going to move on to our meaty topic of urban resilience. Lauren, your organization has a really strong focus on urban resilience. Can you tell us how you define urban resilience and how you work with partners in this space? So when we talk about urban resilience, it's really important to actually establish that shared definition because resilience is ultimately something that we look at in a city as a system. So multiple actors need to come together to build city resilience. Within the city network that we convene, we define urban resilience as the ability of everyone in a city, as I mentioned, from the citizen to businesses, institutions, to survive, adapt, and thrive no matter what shock or stress they face. Now, what does that actually mean in practice? How do you build urban resilience? When you're taking on such a bold and broad view, where do you start? And the key is really that cities and city leaders need to be the protagonist in that story. They need to be able to have a vision for urban resilience and to bring that together. So what we do at the Resilient Cities Network is we work in three main ways with our cities and and our partners. First and foremost, and at the base of everything that we do, is empowerment. We must empower our city leaders to actually be prepared for their challenges. So we need to provide them with the kinds of tools that they need to do this. Some of these are technologies. Others are soft skills, the the ability to convene around similar principles um, and work together. The second thing that we do is that we use these mobilized cities who have a clear vision of what they want to achieve to protect their citizens, to build stronger communities, to build more competitive cities. And we mobilize multi-city programs Right? Cities are an incredible platform for change because they have the scale to make a difference in terms of our global goals. Right, We talked about sustainable development. We talked about the climate. These are global goals. But they have the agility and they have the local mandates to make change quickly and effectively 
um, really with with citizens at, at the core of what they do. And the last thing we do, which is really critical for working with partners, is we mobilize investments. And this is really important because once we understand where our goals are, right, we have to dedicate the resources to develop these better kinds of approaches for building resilience in our cities. So, so those are some of the ways that, that we work with our cities. And I know that we're going to dive deeper into that, uh, but to give you a broad view of, of how we work. That's super helpful. Thank you, Lauren. And now on to you, Kate. We've heard the re- word resilience lots during COVID. Can you tell us a little bit about what resilience means to you personally, as well as to Arup in the context of our built environment? Mm. No, thanks, Michelle. And I think actually it really sort of builds off um, Lauren that the definition that you gave um, at the start of it being resilience, being the ability to withstand, adapt to, and recover positively from these changing conditions around us and the shocks and stresses that we see increasingly in the world. But you're right, Michelle, it really is a broad term and it, it can run the risk of, you know, trying to say everything and actually saying nothing at the same time. And we talk about resilience um, in such a broad context from resilience in the built environment to a deeper level of human psychological resilience. And Lauren and I were talking earlier about our 10-year-old daughters and how much of our focus lately is on um, that sort of pre-teen psychological resilience. But we'll leave that for another podcast um, another day and uh, and stick to stick to the topic of resilience in the built environment, which, um, you know, I think it really does build on this idea of the ability to withstand, adapt to and recover positively from those shocks and stresses. And there's no doubt across the world we're experiencing those shocks and stresses, I think, at an ever-increasing rate. Climate change, digital disruption, the pandemic, geopolitical uncertainty, feel like they're all playing out around us sort of simultaneously um, at an increasing pace. And I think if the last couple of years have taught us anything, it's that these major change events are growing more frequent and in many ways even less predictable than they have in the past. And so it is critical that we focus simultaneously both on this mitigation, mitigating impacts of um, carbon emissions, making sure that we've got the race to zero well in hand, but simultaneously turning our attention, I think increasingly so in turning our attention to adaptation and really looking at how we can bring resilience to life um, through the work that we do. Uh, And there's a quote that I love that the Resilience Shift um, shared recently, which to me captures the, the essence of what resilience is about. And they've said, society deserves safe, sustainable and resilient infrastructure. Our communities are calling for it and our future generations will depend on it. I love it. And very uh, topical when we're talking about 10-year-old daughters too, because it's important to remind ourselves that we're not just building for us, we're building for their future. So thank you for your definitions, really helpful. Um, But the question is, how do we build resilience into our lives and into our cities? And so Lauren, I'm going to start with you. You talked before about the value of having a resilience plan, but um, I'm not really sure what a resilience plan is and how on earth do you go about building one? Well, as you said, Michelle, it's important to have a plan. Having a plan means 
you need to have a framework. You need to have a strategy to to develop that plan. And it's really a pleasure to be talking about this, you know, with, with Kate and, and with you, because from the very beginning of the Resilient Cities work, um, which which started now, you know, almost a decade ago, developing the kinds of frameworks that we would need to build urban resilience plans, to build urban resilience strategies. Um, Arup worked with the Rockefeller Foundation, who helped to launch uh, the Resilient Cities movement uh, to develop something called the City Resilience Framework. And the City Resilience Framework is essentially um, a centering framework around which you can build a resilience plan. So the City Resilience Framework has essentially four components. And it looks at how the city as a system is performing when it comes to these four dimensions of resilience. And those four dimensions that we must look at if we, if we want to build resilience in the city as a system are economy and society, how many jobs we can create, how mobile our society is, how people relate to one another. We have to look at infrastructure and environment. So what are both the built and the natural enabling factors that we have in a city that support the function of that city. Um, we have to look at health and well-being of people and the health systems that we have to support that. And finally, and very importantly, we have to look at leadership and governance. What are the processes and institutions within a city that enable us to keep moving forward and to manage the kinds of services and then manage the kinds of challenges that face a city? So in order to build that resilience plan, you take this framework and you gather people around it. You must have a very inclusive kind of a process in a city. And when we work with cities, one of the first things that we do is we focus on creating a specific position, someone in a city, a chief resilience officer who will own the resilience agenda. And that person leads the development of a resilience strategy. That person works closely with the city leader, whether that's a mayor or a governor uh, or a municipal commissioner, to develop that plan. And they do that both across the institutions of the city that are public, that are private, civil society, and then down to the citizen level. So it's a deep process of consultation around that framework that really answers how is the city performing in those four dimensions? And then based on those challenges and opportunities, laying out the vision that city has for becoming more resilient in the future and prioritizing specific goals and specific projects. I love it. That framework was so helpful. And the word inclusive, one of my favorite words. So really important to think about that governance and leadership in this. Um, Kate, I know you were across so many projects with Arup, um, but can you share some specific examples of projects that have involved your approach to resilience? Thanks, Michelle. No, I'd love to share some projects. And there really are, I think, a number that demonstrate our approach to resilience. And to my comment earlier, I think, you know, with this sort of breadth of the definition of resilience, it really does help to speak in practical terms around how we bring resilience to life through our planning, through our design work in the built environment by talking to some of these project examples. And actually, I loved, Lauren, what you were just saying about this systems thinking about interconnected thinking through the framework. 
And it really starts across the full project life cycle at that earliest planning stage. And I think that's a common thread we see through our projects when we bring resilience to life successfully. Um, so a couple of projects um, that I'd love to share today. The first is multi-hazard climate and disaster relief risk assessment that we've been working on for the Kingdom of Tonga. And as you might be aware, Tonga is one of the lowest lying countries in the world. And partly as a result of that, the island's exposed to many natural hazards, including earthquakes, tsunamis, floods, cyclones. And um, in fact, in the 2021 World Risk Index, Tonga rates the third highest of 181 countries that they assessed. So resilience, climate adaptation is really central to Tonga. And from a built environment lens, we were brought in to help analyse over 50,000 pieces of infrastructure in Tonga to help model and understand the future impacts of climate change on their built environment and their, their infrastructure. And we're now using that analysis to help us to steer investment and inform climate adaptation planning and infrastructure investment for future projects in Tonga, which is, is really fantastic to see. Another project I'd love to share is the Great Barrier Reef Decarbonisation Project. So in the, the Barrier Reef, um, whole of island communities are moving to lower their greenhouse gas emissions and increase their resilience to climate change. And we're working with a number of partners, um, including traditional owners, to conduct a sustainability assessment for each island community. And we're working on developing emissions profiles, working with our teams of engineers, scientists, community engagement specialists, a whole diverse range of, of individuals um, to collaborate with the traditional owners, the island communities and key stakeholders to really identify and analyse environmental and sustainability opportunities um, to suit the local conditions and to increase their resilience. And finally, I won't go into it in great depth, but um, Lauren, we were talking about it the other day. Another fantastic project that we've been working on with you is the Distributed Renewable Energy Report, which is helping cities to transition to renewable energy sources. And again, another fantastic project and has really benefited on, from the collaboration between us. Wow, so many projects. And, and it's the thing I love about this podcast when we're chatting to you and, and talking about Arup. It's so global and so many projects of huge impact. It's lovely to hear about some of these things. Um, now, one thing that we focus on strongly in this podcast is the importance of collaboration. And one project that you've both been closely involved in, which you, you know, we've discussed a little bit or touched on is the distributed renewable energy report. Um, I'm going to start with you, Lauren. Can you tell us a little bit more about that project and also the process of collaborating with Arup on this? This project on distributed renewable energy is is so timely. And so the opportunity to work on this with Arup was very exciting for us. When, when you think about what city leaders are faced with right now, extremely rapid urbanization, right? Where, where we're sitting in, in Singapore, in our neighborhood, for example, we've got billions of people who are projected to move to cities by 2050. And so change is happening around us, rapid urbanization at the same time. And we've talked about it quite a lot already during this podcast, climate change impacts are increasing in intensity in ways that make it very challenging to continue continuity of, of urban services. And the energy sector is, is one of those sectors that's very 
it's very clearly affected. If you look at even the energy capital of the United States, Houston, Texas, they faced a deep freeze completely at an unexpected time, and their grid wasn't able to cope. People were left without power. So even the seemingly strongest cities can can have these huge resilience challenges. So the opportunity to work on distributed renewable energy um, as, as an area is so important because it offers city leaders the opportunity to really build resilience. Why does it offer that? Because when we build distributed renewable energy systems, we're, we're taking the energy sector out of its concentrated form, and we're distributing it literally into these smaller investments that are much less vulnerable to a single shock. Um, And where we have this uh, rising challenge of climate, where we have a lot of informality and communities that are distributed and don't have access to power, and about a billion people still don't have access to basic services in our cities, in particular in in emerging Asia and in Africa. Um, It's really important. So we came together around this issue and immediately we we agreed between the the energy team uh, in Arab and and our team in Resilient Cities that this was a topic that was so important that we had to, to talk about it. And in the process of looking at distributed renewable energy as an opportunity, we realized the technologies are improving at a very rapid pace and the price for implementing distributed renewable energy is falling. But yet the projects weren't taking off. So what we wanted to do was to actually break that open and try to figure out how we could really elucidate the reasons that distributed renewable energy isn't picking up as quickly as it should for our cities that are growing. Why, why is this opportunity not taking off? And so through the process, we developed um, a paper and a kit of parts that first analyzes the major challenges for distributed renewable energy, and then give some ideas and some cases that can help cities that want to invest in distributed renewable energy, the kinds of ideas that they need to both build up their capacity to implement these projects and then actually develop and get investment for distributed renewable energy projects. So it was, it was a very exciting uh, project to work on. And in some ways, uh, the publication of the report was kind of the end of the beginning because now that we have these recommendations and, and now that it's very clear where some of the critical opportunities are for building capacity and for really lining up these fantastic resilient infrastructure investments, we've got a lot of work to do across the network to actually prepare more of these projects and get them funded. So good. Almost like an instruction manual for the future, I feel like this is. Um, Kate, how important are partnerships like this um, to Arup and does this help you to scale your impact? Oh, these partnerships are absolutely foundational for us, Michelle. I think, you know, to Lauren's point, you know, these are such complex, seemingly intractable problems that we're now facing in the world. And we need new ways of working together to actually unlock them and to come up with solutions that are different to what we've done in the past and how we've worked historically. And I think, you know, we have learned from recent events that we are part of this interconnected system. We, we, this word systems, thinking systems, sort of interconnected um, systems have come up time and again today. And I think no single person, no single group or organisation could possibly respond to 
these um, challenges alone. And so these partnerships, the partnerships like we have with Lauren and her team are absolutely critical so that we can work cross-sector, cross-discipline to provide the leadership and the outcomes that we absolutely need to deliver at pace. The sense of urgency, rightly, is in front of us. And I think for us at Arrow, with our focus on creating a sustainable future for all, we, we absolutely want to seek out these collaborations, these partnerships to see that step change in climate resilience, energy efficiency, like we've just talked about with the distributed energy report, um, at circular economy agenda and infrastructure resilience more broadly. So we really do look for those like-minded people, like-minded groups who want to make that positive difference in the world, um, who we can then lean into to absolutely shift the dial on what we're doing. So I think we all recognise we're stronger together. Oh, that's such a, I feel like we should end on that, but no, we're going to keep going. We are all stronger <laughs> together. And how do we add more people to the network? Well, look, you've already given us so much useful information in, in this conversation, which I'm sure has helped to motivate many of our listeners to want to be stronger together and into thinking about how they can maybe start to take action in this direction. So Lauren, for those listening who would like to learn more about how to build a resilience plan, do you have some tricks, some tips? Are there any key tools that they can start using now? Well, come talk to us. We, we're a network that is, is open. As I mentioned, we have 97 member cities and we are opening that network to, to new members. We work with new members to walk them through the resilience planning processes to train chief resilience officers. That said, there's a lot of information and tools that we do make available online. So going onto the website, taking a look at resilience plans that have been published, and there are more than 80 of them from very different cities with very different socioeconomic challenges, environmental challenges. So looking at those um, is very instructive in terms of how a city can plan and what they can expect to develop through the planning process. We also on, on the back of, of COVID-19, re in response to our member demand, we produced some quick diagnostic tools on resilient recovery. We had many of our cities, in fact, more than 60% uh, of our city members, chief resilience officers were deeply involved in the response and recovery efforts um, and the thought process of how we now build back in a much better and much more resilient way. So we produce some rapid tools for cities to help prioritize investments post-COVID so that the investments that they would make would actually respond to multiple challenges and yield multiple benefits. And that, at the core of it, um, it is resilience, right? It, it's delivering those investments that yield multiple benefits. So those tools are online. And then one other project that I did specifically want to talk about um, is a new kind of tool that looks at the built environment and looks at infrastructure. And that is a tool that we've been developing with generous support from City Foundation and uh, working very closely with both the public and the private sector in Sydney and with our partners in um, the City of Sydney and the entire metro area and Infrastructure New South Wales. And what we set out to do through that project was to look at 
not just individual pieces of infrastructure and their resilience, but to look at the interdependencies between different pieces of infrastructure and what kinds of benefits or what kind of risks those interdependent systems would pose for communities in the face of rising challenges. And so that's a tool that we're developing now. It's in a pilot stage, um, and it's going to become available in, in just a few months' time. So there are a lot of tools that cities, practitioners can access. And again, we're very happy to have those conversations uh, with partners from around the world. Perfect. Thank you. And I think it's really good that we shift our mindset to stop thinking in silos, which I think is a really easy thing to do and think about some of those interdependencies. Um, Kate, same question to you. For those who are inspired by this podcast, what is your advice around some of the key actions that people can take around resilience? Look, there's no doubt it's an exciting time. You know, it's an exciting time for the world at large, but I think particularly for us in the city space, in the built environment to really double down and accelerate this change that we're seeing. And I think it's it's not just an opportunity, it's actually a critical imperative for us to drive greater value by delivering infrastructure that really contributes to the resilience of our society. We've talked today, I think, about people, places, the planet in a sense, but how we bring all of that together through the solutions, through the the way we're working um, together is critical. So I think probably three three actions for me, if I could leave us with three points. Firstly, I'd really encourage everyone to value resilience properly. We talk about this idea of systems thinking, um, but I think it's critical that we look at value not just at the individual asset level, but we shift our thinking and look at the contribution of infrastructure to our overall resilience as a society. And I think as leaders... As professionals in this environment, we must take a more integrated and broader view of value and value in the built environment. I think secondly, and it really builds on a point, Lauren, that you just made, it's harvest the knowledge that's out there. There is such great work that's being done through groups like the Resilient Cities Network, really lean in and harvest that knowledge, build on it um, and share generously because together we're going to actually take take the steps forward that we need to take. And I think finally, and it really probably touches on that thread that we've had today of partnerships and collaboration, I think we need to be radically collaborative. I think across all of government, across industry, we need to co-create and drive much greater integration across our infrastructure systems, a whole of the built environment, but fundamentally in the way that we work together as people. So I think, as we've said, none of us can make the change alone that we want to see, um, and we really must continue to lean into these partnerships and seek out other like-minded people who are looking to make that positive difference in the world. Oh, I love it. But we're going to have to leave it on that positive note, I'm afraid, because we are out of time for today's episode, at least. I want to thank everybody for listening in. And specifically, Rowan, I would really like to thank you for reminding us to be inclusive and think outside of our silo boxes um, and giving us some really easy tips and tricks for to be able to start on this journey. So thank you, Lauren. It's been a pleasure to be with you. Thanks for having and- me. Kate, I want to thank you for so many things that your global examples just really help to inspire us about what can be done when we work together, when we're inclusive, when we value partnerships, and also reminding us that we're doing this for your 10-year-old daughters and for the future generation, as well as trying to survive ourselves. So thank you, Kate.
Thanks, Michelle. And thanks, Lauren. I think, as you said, Lauren, at one point, it's the end of the beginning of the journey. So we've still got a long way to go um, together. If you want to learn more about what we discussed today, you can access links to the projects in our show notes. Please stay tuned for our next episode, which happens in two weeks, where we're going to explore the energy transition risks and the opportunities. And don't forget to subscribe to Sustainable Forces on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite streaming service. Thank you.